The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare us the table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, hello, Lake City family, and uh, thank you, Pastor Mark and Krista, for just such a wonderful tribute and helping us kind of get our hearts right this Memorial Day weekend, and it's a joy to be here. And, you know, as I jump in, I, first thing I want you to know is I am not taking it personally. Uh, I know that Pastor Jim gave Tome verse 1, which says, the Lord is my shepherd, which is such a great uh, declaration. And then last week, of course, he covered verses two and three. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. I mean, oh, awesome, right? Beautiful. We, we love those words. And me, I get to talk about the valley of the shadow of death. I get to talk about evil. And of course, I'm just kidding. Uh, it's always a privilege to speak from God's word. And Psalm 23, all of Psalm 23 is rich and beautiful. And, and I love verse 4. And honestly, had I been given a choice, I would have probably asked for verse 4. But as I jump in, I, I, I would start by just asking you a question. Uh, simply, what are you afraid of? Uh, as you sit there, wherever you're sitting, in your living room or in your car, uh, what are you afraid of? In his book, Seven More Men, Eric Metaxas begins chapter six with these words. On June 8th, 1978, Harvard University students, parents, professors, and administrators stood beneath a sea of umbrellas waiting to hear a speech by one of the most famous men in the world. Lengthy applause and a standing ovation followed his introduction, after which Alexander Solzhenitsyn, celebrated Russian dissident, poet, playwright, and Nobel Prize-winning novelist, stepped forward. But his commencement address, delivered in Russian and translated into English, wasn't what his audience expected. And by the end of it, outraged members of the audience booed him. Why? Because Solzhenitsyn, who had spent much of his life condemning communism and Soviet power, had dared to criticize the West. Now, I certainly hope you don't boo me today. Of course, even if you do, I won't hear it because you're not here. So, But uh, my goal is never to simply be upsetting. But, you know, the Lord has laid some things on my heart that might feel a little bit like being critical of the West, if you will. They may make you a little uncomfortable. I know they were uncomfortable for me these last several days as I've been preparing, and trust me, you don't need to worry. There's plenty of discomfort to go around. But here's the thing. Discomfort's a good thing. I, I mean, I, here's how I think about it. Like, I know, for instance, during this pandemic that all of you are thinking about really important things. Like you're thinking about people's lives. You're thinking about the economy. You're thinking about uh, what does it look like to regather as a church? Me? 
I'm thinking about football. Like, I'm wondering, are we going to even have a football season next year? Because, see, this time of year, I would typically be trying to scheme my way to find a way for me to get Kelly to let me go down to Palo Alto so I could hang out with my son, Tavita, and his family and uh, catch a little bit of Stanford spring football. And if you want to talk about discomfort, like football practice is designed to take you out of your comfort zone to push you physically and emotionally and mentally. And all of that is to make you better, stronger, more prepared for the upcoming season and the trials that await you that, that next year. And guess what? It's the same thing with some of these uncomfortable conversations that we have to have as believers. As we have them, they give us the opportunity to be better better Christ followers, and better at the mission that God has called us to, that mission to make disciples of all nations. So finally, or excuse me, so to my family, my Lake City family, I'm asking you not to just put up with the discomfort, but embrace it and maybe even get a little sense of enjoyment out of it. I know, I'm going to be honest, I miss those days of being uncomfortable on the football field. I promise I'll come back to Alexander Solzhenitsyn, but I want to jump in to Psalm 23 because, you know, we've, you've, you've heard us talk a little bit about Psalm 23 and it, you know, possibly being the most uh, used chapter in the Bible. And if that's true, then I think you could say that verse four might very well be the most used verse in all of the Bible, because if you've ever been to a funeral, then you've likely heard these words from verse four, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. See, verse 4 begins with those well-known words, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And so right away, I want to point out a couple of things that are important for us to notice. Here, David describes a reality for every shepherd. Uh, some of the commentaries that I read described the journey that each year shepherds would make moving from the lowlands to the highlands in order to find those green pastures and those quiet waters. Often that journey would include stretches of darkness. And so that word that's translated shadow of death is the word salmaveth. And it was fun. I listened to a Jewish rabbi uh, teaching on Psalm 23 and it was fun to listen to him because he would jump back and forth between the Hebrew and the English. And, but when he got to this verse four, he said that, that, uh, that Saul, Saul Malveth, uh, it doesn't mean shadow of death. He says it, no, it's not that. He goes, it refers to the valley of dark shadows. Uh, but here's the thing that, that word Salmaveth is the same root word that is used for death. And hence, when you are reading a word, uh, word for word translation, it will typically include the word death. Now, I'm no expert when it comes to Bible translations, but I can tell you that one of the primary differences between some of the translations and others have to do with whether they translate thought for thought versus word for word. And one of the big reasons that we use the ESV, the English Standard Version here at Lake City, is it is a word for word translation. The challenge with word for word translations is sometimes uh, it can be harder to understand. Sometimes it can be more difficult to apply to our context. But 
In the NIV, which is a thought-for-thought translation, here's what we read when we come to verse 4. We read this, Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So similar to what the rabbi expressed, the psalmist here isn't actually talking about death necessarily, but rather he's describing this very dark place, the valley of dark shadows. And don't worry, you don't have to go uh, rip up all your programs from the funerals you've been at. It isn't wrong to include death in those dark shadows. After all, for many, there is nothing darker than the thought of death. And so certainly David is offering a word for those that are facing that darkness as well. My point is that he's speaking about so much more here in verse 4. And he uses his experience as a shepherd to help illustrate some of the realities that we face in life. See, for the sheep, those journeys through the dark shadows can be frightening. As they enter into an area that is dark, maybe the little bit of moonlight coming off of the, off, off of the moon starts to cast shadows that can begin looking frightening, can be looking like predators. And it's easy for fear to creep in when you find yourself in those dark shadows. What are those places that we find ourselves that we would say those are the dark shadows? And honestly, we're in one of those seasons. This pandemic is a storm. And and not just the pandemic, but dealing with how to respond to the pandemic has become a storm for our country, for our churches, and for us individually. Of course, some of you might be in the middle of your own dark valley right now, maybe brought on by the pandemic, but maybe not. I know there are some in our Lake City family that right now are dealing with serious medical issues. I know there are some struggling because of enormous financial strain. Still others find themselves with relationships on the brink of disaster. And then some of you have recently had to deal with the darkness of someone close to you passing away. But regardless of where you find yourself, if you are in a valley of darkness, then David is speaking to you. And I think it's important to see the word shadow. While it doesn't appear in the NIV, the word for word translations do include this word shadow. And when I listened to the rabbi explain what the psalmist was referring to, he used the word, uh, when he was talking about the word salmaveth, he too included that word shadow. I remember as a kid, I was the youngest in my family when I was growing up. And my siblings, along with my cousins, they loved watching Nightmare Theater which was this weekly show of the scariest movie, the movies that Hollywood had to offer, which, by the way, are nothing compared to today's movies. But I remember watching those shows and feeling my heart racing, and I'd find myself kind of scooting back from the screen because, of course, that monster that's on the screen is going to jump out and somehow get me. See, I wanted to be with the big kids, but I hated those nights. I mean, my favorite part was when the car commercial would come on and, and I would get a break from all of that tension. Honestly, to this day, I, I, I think that's why I still hate scary movies. And I know some of you love scary movies and I'll pray for you. But the thing about scary movies, especially those slasher type movies, is we know it isn't real. The monster, the bad guy, the villain, they're just images on a screen. A shadow, if you will. 
But the thing is, just like that little kid me watching those monsters as a little kid, I felt the same emotion as if that monster was going to really get me. And that's what can happen when we find ourselves in a storm. And please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that our health problems or our financial challenges or your marriage struggles are just Hollywood movies. What I am saying is David is reminding us here that often we allow the shadows that are cast by some of these challenges, that we allow them to take on more importance than we should. Our very real storm that we face brings some very real challenges. We've all been there. But some of you are there right now. But how often do we start imagining all the possible bad things that can happen long before any of them are even a possibility? Instead, let's consider what we're really faced with and see what God has for us. How often have I found myself ready to jump off the cliff because of the shadows my problems are casting? And all along, the good shepherd is saying, I've got you. The other word that I would draw your attention to in this passage is the word through. That word through is a big word in this verse of scripture. In every translation, in every understanding of Psalm 23, David is very clear. This journey we are on, it's not into. This isn't a cul-de-sac. This isn't an end point. It's through the valley, through the shadows, through the darkness. Even, in fact, you might even say especially if that darkness is death. See, for those of us that have trusted our lives to Jesus, that stand forgiven before what, uh, be, stand forgiven because of what Christ did on the cross, death is just something we go through. It's not an ending, but it's rather, it's a beginning. I love what Billy Graham said years before his death. He said, someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? I shall be more alive than I am now. I will just have changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. Which then brings us to this next phrase, I will fear no evil. You know, it's funny because in all the commentaries I read, very few of them even talked about this phrase. And if they did, it was typically just a very quick, we don't have to fear because God is with us. Which, of course, is true, but... I want to spend a little time on this because ever since finding out that I was preaching on verse 4, God has continued to impress on me this word evil. And I'm not saying that this entire psalm revolves around evil, but this phrase, and even more specifically, this word evil, is almost exactly in the middle of this psalm. So in some ways, the first half of psalm sets up this word, and then the back half of psalms closes it out. But what does David even mean by the word evil? When you think of the word evil, what comes to your mind? When you think uh, where God fits in when it comes to the concept of evil, what, what, what do you think about that? I asked some of you that question. Watch this. All right. So the first question is, what does the word evil mean to you? The word evil to me, to me means uh, that stuff. I think the word evil to me uh, means the intention to do harm, long-term or short. 
kind of. <laughs> I think. Doing stuff that's absolutely against what the Lord has for us. That it would be deliberate sin. That it would be deliberate sin. Intentional, um, intentional acts of um, unkindness. Intentional acts of harm. I think to me it just means uh, all the things out there that are against you, all the sin that builds up and affects your life, whether it be coming from other people or from uh, forces you don't understand. Evil is part of our life and it's just a consequence of sin. The, the word evil to me, I mean, the obvious one is, is the antithesis of good. Um, and so it's like everything that's wrong with um, the goodness in the world, anything that challenges that. That's a big question. Uh, I think right away that every good and perfect gift is from God our Father. So the part of me that sees things as black and white sees evil as anything not of the Lord that's good. Someone who is evil is willing to put their own interests in front of others. So someone who'd be willing to maybe achieve a goal without worrying about the consequences or who they might be hurting in the process. I just think of something that's just, you know, there's, there's two parts. The first part is that something that's so wicked and wrong and it's always associated with hurting people. And then there's the other part that theologically, anything that's disobedience to God. Evil to me means anything that goes against God's standard. Evil to me, the very first word that came to mind when you said evil, um, I thought of darkness. Anything and everything and everybody that goes against what the word says, his word. Um, could I be evil? Absolutely. And the only thing that brings me back to the reality of good and who he is, is by going back to him, going to the throne, going into the word. Bad. <laughs> <laughs> Bad. I agree. <laughs> um, I want to say evil is uh, something without good, the opposite of good, I guess is what I would say. Um, so bad. Yeah, bad, bad is a good answer. <laughs> Actually, the first thing that does come to my mind when we talk about evil is a total absence of good. And in that case, that is a total absence of God. Uh, I think of the, the devil. As he's called the evil one. And uh, ultimately, uh, the source and the emanation of all evil. I know some of you are uh, probably sighing a sigh of relief that I didn't call you and put you on the spot. Uh, I don't know how often you've ever sat and thought, I mean, what is evil? And, you know, it's interesting because so often we, uh, like the only way we can describe evil is to talk about the opposite of evil. But it's interesting that right after David speaks about traveling through this darkness, he follows that with this declaration. And understand this declaration isn't simply that I won't be afraid, but it specifically says, I will fear no evil. So clearly David is somehow connecting the darkness that we find ourselves traveling through with evil. And evil is defined as 
profoundly immoral and wicked, uh, morally wrong or bad, immoral, uh, wicked comes up again in dictionary.com. And I just quickly want to talk a little bit about that word evil and offer you six things that I think are important when you think of this concept of evil. The first one is simply this. We live in a fallen world. Uh, we know because of the Genesis account that through one man, Adam, sin entered the world. And ever since, we have lived with the consequences of that sin. Romans 3.23 reminds us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all born into this fallen world. The second thing is that evil proves God's existence. Uh, Ravi Zacharias, the Christian apologist who, uh, by the way, on May 19th, traveled that through that valley into the presence of the Lord. Uh, if you haven't read or listened to any of Ravi's uh, material, he's well worth the time. But I love how he would address this idea of evil, especially when he would be confronted by an atheist that would see the presence of evil as proof that there is no God. See, to the atheist, uh, or at least some, they would look at evil and they would say, well, how can there be a God? And certainly how could there be a powerful and loving God if evil exists? And Ravi would simply begin first with the question, do you believe there is evil in the world? And of course, their answer would be the same as our answer. Yes, absolutely. Then he would say, well, if there is evil, then there has to be some sort of a moral code. In other words, there, there has to be some sort of a standard. Otherwise, how do you call something evil if there's not a standard that says that's good and this is bad? And then he goes on and he says, and so, but if there is a moral code, if there is this standard, then there must be a moral code giver that has to have come from someplace. In other words, evil doesn't prove that God doesn't exist. It's exactly the opposite. The presence of evil proves that there is a God. Number three, God can overrule evil for good. So not only is God aware of evil, he's sovereign over evil. That, and, you know, that should be obvious because that's what sovereign means, sovereign over everything, which means he's aware, it means he's, he allows it, and it means he can overrule it. So while we might not fully understand why God allows evil to exist in places, we can rest in truths like Romans 8:28 that all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. We read in Job and if you're not familiar with the the story of Job, Job is this righteous man, he's wealthy, he's got a lot of possessions and Satan wants to come after him or at least his possessions. And so in Job 1, verse 12, we read this, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And so we, we read here that uh, God had to give Satan permission to go after Job's possessions. But he even limited him there. He said, You can't go after Job. You can go after his possessions. Look at David's own story. In 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles, we read about David sinning and bringing God's judgment on Israel. And these two books of the Bible often tell about the same historical events. They, they tell of the same events, but from slightly different perspectives. So these two chapters are different of accounts of the exact same story, but they start very differently. In 2 Samuel 24, we read this. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and, and Judah. So you can see here that he incited David, the Lord. 
Then when we go to Chronicles, in 1 Chronicles 21, we read this. It says, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Here we have Satan inciting David. So the same thing happens, but in one account it says that God incites David, and the other one we read that uh, the Satan inv- incites uh, David. So both times it's about David taking a census when God didn't want him to take a census. One time it's God inciting him. The other, the other time it's, it's Satan. And there's this tension whenever you start talking about evil and God in the same conversation. On the one hand, we want to believe that God is all powerful and all loving because he is. But we have to somehow reconcile the equally true idea that God has rule over evil. So while he will never take away our free will to choose him or to choose evil, he never gives up authority to work things out for his ultimate purpose. I think one of the best illustrations of this is the story of Joseph back in Genesis. And if you don't know that story, Jacob, who eventually gets his name changed to Israel, and Israel has 12 sons, and they become eventually what we know as the 12 tribes of Israel, But earlier in their story, the older brothers decide that they're going to sell their younger brother, Joseph, into slavery. Joseph is the young kid brother. He's arrogant. He's a pest. But as a fellow younger brother, I feel like that's kind of our job description, isn't it? But anyhow, he he is that, and they, they have enough of it, so they sell him into slavery. Long story short, God ends up blessing Joseph. He rises to second in command in all of Egypt and ultimately saves his brothers in what will eventually become the nation of Israel. And then we read this in Genesis 50. As for you, this is Joseph talking to his brothers. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So again, it's hard to reconcile that tension But nonetheless, it is true. God has rule over evil. And then the fourth thing I want to say about evil is that when people break God's law, there are consequences. Because we live in a fallen world, because God has rule over evil, because God will work things out to his perfect plan, doesn't mean, therefore, we can do whatever we want to do and God will work everything out for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Yes, God is sovereign over evil and sin. And yes, God will work things together for his ultimate good. But there are still very real consequences when we choose to violate God's law. And no one knew this better than David. When he sinned against Bathsheba and murdered her husband Uriah, he repented and he experienced God's amazing grace. But there were consequences. And these were heavy consequences that cost David dearly for years. On the other hand, it can be frustrating. Just because we are called according to his purpose doesn't mean we are exempt from pain and suffering. There are times that we can find ourselves looking around and it feels like, oh my goodness, the wicked are prospering. I mean, where are the consequences? Sometimes we can find ourselves looking around and wondering as David did in Psalm 37. We read this, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Listen, folks, we're reminded in Galatians 6, verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. 
Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. These, there are consequences, but it doesn't always come the way we think it should. And honestly, good thing, because if I received everything that I deserve, I don't know where I would be. I'm so grateful for God's grace, but I am grateful also for his consequences. And then number five, talking about evil, God cares about the problem of evil. Right about now, it would be easy to mistakenly come to the conclusion that God doesn't really care that much about evil. I mean, after all, it's part of a fallen world. There's consequences to sin. He can overrule it when he absolutely, when it's absolutely necessary in order to bring about good. And besides, it all works out in the end. And if you believe that, you'd be absolutely wrong. The reason Jesus came is because God cares about evil. Jesus came to directly deal with evil. Luke 18, we read the story of the persistent widow, sometimes referred to as the story of the unrighteous judge. And the basic idea of the story is this. In a certain city, there's this unrighteous judge, and he has this persistent widow that comes day after day to ask for justice. So what she's asking for is the right thing. She deserves it. But the unrighteous judge says no. But undeterred, this uh, woman continues to keep asking until finally he gives in, not because he's righteous or good, but because she's just worn him out. And while we typically focus on how this teaches us to be persistent in our prayers, the real lesson I believe is found in verse seven and eight, where we read this. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? In other words, if an unrighteous judge is willing to give justice, how much more will our perfect and righteous judge and shepherd want to give justice? We have a righteous judge who does care about justice, who does care about the problem of evil and injustice. Now, I'm probably going to make some of you a little uncomfortable but remember, that's a good thing, right? It's through discomfort that we grow, that we become more of what we are created to become. It's the willingness to step into those uncomfortable conversations that are part of being the hands and feet of Jesus. And that's why, by the way, at Lake City, we make things like the sanctity of human life a big deal because we know that there is an evil and there is an injustice that exploits women and takes the life of innocent, unborn children. Like in the story of the unrighteous judge, we know that God is saying, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And I know some of you are thinking after I say that, amen. And you're right, amen. Because that's why we speak out about things like that. We speak out about immorality, about abuse. We speak, that's why we take on the plight of the orphan. It's why we feed the hungry. But brothers and sisters, Lake City family, you know I love you. But when I read this parable, I was immediately reminded of an injustice that persistent brothers and sisters, fellow heirs of Jesus, brothers and sisters that we're going to spend eternity with, have been asking for for a long time. And I'll be the first to say I haven't always agreed with the way that they ask. But they've been asking for justice just the same. And I promise you, there is a righteous judge that is listening to their cries. 
You might recognize this face. His name is Ahmad Arbery, 25-year-old black man. And on February 23rd, he was unarmed and he was pursued through a neighborhood outside Brunswick, Georgia, by two white men in a pickup truck armed with a shotgun and a 357 Magnum. And as you probably know, it ended with three shots being fired and Ahmad Arbery dead. Now, I don't want to try to analyze all the questions that are being handled right now by the Georgia Bureau of Investigation because I will undoubtedly get some factual detail wrong and you'll end up missing my point, which right about now you're probably asking, what is my point? And I will get to that, but let me just say this. No matter what comes of this investigation, there's no excuse for two men to chase an unarmed man through the streets armed with a shotgun and a 357 Magnum and then to not even be arrested for two months, we shouldn't be looking for ways to justify that narrative. I know I just did what I said I wasn't going to do, but let me get to my point. And my point is simply this. We still have injustice. We still have systemic racism in America. And as the church, we should be that persistent widow, praying for, asking for, demanding justice. And I know some of you are listening right now, and you're saying, well... David, now you are out of line because I am not a racist. And besides, at the end of the day, isn't it just sin? I mean, isn't that the problem? And the answer is yes, absolutely. Honestly, as I look at this and other things that we deal with, issues that we deal with, part of the problem, in my opinion, is that too often we, we, we end up feeling like we're fighting the evil out there when in reality the evil is in here. In fact, I started today off telling you about Solzhenitsyn because my favorite quote from Solzhenitsyn is this, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. In other words, see, I agree with him. What divides good and evil isn't Republican or Democrat. It isn't white or black. It isn't borders between nations. It's the heart of every human being. It's sin. But church, we can't stop there. That can't be enough to simply acknowledge that it's sin. Let me ask you a couple questions, and I want you to be honest with yourself. How many of you, when you heard that an unarmed black man running through a white neighborhood was killed by two white men, said to yourself, there must be more to this story? Now, full transparency, I did that. And to be fair, there is almost always more to the story. And that's not my point. What if you had woken up and you had heard that an unarmed white man was pursued through a black neighborhood, was killed by two black men? Would you have said, oh, there must be more to this story? And listen, I'm not saying based on how you respond to those two scenarios, that makes you a racist or not. What I am saying is racism is evil and God cares about evil. God cares about racism. Jesus went to the cross because of sin, like the sin of racism. We are all made in the image of God, white, black, brown. It doesn't matter. We have to care because God cares. And listen, I don't have any great answers. I know it can be flippant or perceived as dismissive to say that Jesus is the answer, but we know he is. Again, we have to find ways to do more. 
After all, when it comes to abortion, we would never be satisfied with simply saying, well, the problem is sin. Those people, they need Jesus. And as true as that is, we want to do more. We have to do more. So again, I, I don't have any great answers, but maybe would you at least join me these next 21 days and just pray every day. And I don't think that that's going to suddenly change the world, but maybe it'll change me. Maybe it'll change you. Would you commit to trying your hardest to turn off your preconceived notions about what you think you know about this injustice and be willing to just listen? Listen to someone who gets followed when they walk through a store simply because of the color of their skin. Listen to a black kid who's afraid to go to the park because he's not sure what's going to happen. And even as I'm saying that, I know some of you are, say, are trying to explain how they should be looking at that situation. And I'm asking you to stop and listen to their story. Again, I, I know listening isn't going to suddenly change the world, but it just might change me and it might just change you. And perhaps the greatest thing we can do is to forge relationships with people that don't look like us which means some of you need to befriend this big Samoan. But more importantly, your neighbor, your coworker, get to know them, get to know their story. Love them with the love of Christ. It's what we're called to do. Recognizing that we are all part of the human race. And I need to say this because we are in a social media world there have been some online conversations about some of the issues that we are facing in our community, in our culture, in our church. And I would also add conversations about what it looks like to open up our country and more specifically our church. In fact, that's why we're having this town hall meeting on Sunday. And I know those conversations are going to continue because that's the world we live in. And honestly, it's important to be able to have some of these uncomfortable conversations as a church family. I know some of you may even think my talking about racism is somehow too political. Well, the truth is we try to stay out of politics in the sense of entering into the political process, telling you which candidate you should vote for. But when the issues that our political system is dealing with are about issues that God and his word cares about, like sanctity of human life, the inherent value of a person regardless of their skin color, issues of injustice and immorality, then shame on us if we're not willing to step up and speak from a biblical perspective about these issues. But I just want to offer you three things as one of your pastors. Maybe this, you can think of this as a pastoral moment. Three things as we talk about these conversations that we're having, especially online. Number one is this. There are young brothers and sisters, or excuse me, these are your brothers and sisters that you are conversing with, especially when you're on our family Facebook page. There is never an excuse to attack or belittle one another. We're family. By our love, they will know we are Christ followers. Think twice or even three times before you post something that might hurt or discourage a brother or a sister. Disagree, absolutely. Argue, debate, 
but never, never, never be mean. It becomes evidence that can and will, I promise you, be used against the family of God. And when it comes to this whole reopening, understand something. We are all in the same storm, but we are not having the same experience. This feels and looks very different from every, with everyone, and we don't all agree on what should be done. Be nice. Number two, there are people who are still trying to figure out what they think of God, of Jesus, or maybe what they just think of the church. And I know we are called to speak the truth, but Jesus came in grace and truth. And I often forget to lead with grace because I'm so anxious to share the truth. And I'm not asking you to sacrifice your beliefs or your convictions. On the contrary, I'm saying speak the truth, but do it kindly and with grace. I know there are times when things are downright evil. I mean, that's what my sermon is about. But use great discernment before you call something that someone is doing evil. And please stop short of calling them evil. I know there are people that are opposed to anything that has to do with God, which certainly would include you and me. But work hard at not vilifying the other side. They are not the enemy. There is only one enemy. Our battle is against flesh, is not against flesh and blood. And then thirdly, take an honest look at yourself. <laughs> Too often I can find myself arguing my point, convinced that the person that I'm arguing with has a clouded view of the issue. I mean, because of, their, because of their history or maybe their lack of understanding or maybe just their flat ignorance, they just don't get it. But when I stop and I look at myself, I discover that I too have history that's influencing how I view this. I discover that I too don't have a complete understanding of everything that's going on. And yes, at times I too am ignorant. So be humble enough to let God use those conversations to grow you. Don't assume that you've got everything figured out. All right, let me get back to uh, evil. And uh, the last one, number six, and I'm so glad I get to end with this one. There is an age to come where evil will be done away with. Be assured evil will not win in the end. Look at these words in Revelation 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Friends, this is trustworthy and true. In the end, good wins, evil loses. So where do we go from here? Well, David finishes off these verse four by getting personal. See, prior to this, he's used phrases like, he makes me lie down. He leads me besides. He restores. He leads. But here it all changes. After declaring, I will fear no evil, we see that little word for. That little word for. All the evil that he spoke about. David is about to give the reason why he will fear none of it. For or because. But then instead of referring to his good shepherd as he, like we were reading, he says, you are with me. He says, you, it's your rod and your staff. They comfort me. See, David gets personal. And let me just finish off 
with just a few thoughts about his rod and his staff. The rod was like this short club that shepherds would carry and they, they would use it to defend themselves and their sheep against predators, but they would also be known to use it on occasion to discipline a sheep that was misbehaving. The staff, on the other hand, I actually uh, confiscated Pastor Jim's uh, staff, uh, was more the symbol of care. Uh, with it, the, the shepherd could guide sheep with the hooked end. He could, you know, stop a sheep before it ran off a cliff or maybe reach down a ravine and use it to, to help rescue a sheep. And here's the thing. I mentioned earlier that I was grateful for uh, God's grace, but also for his consequences in the same way. I want to be grateful for God's rod and his staff. Uh, much as David says here that he, he finds comfort in both of them. By the way, if you uh, aren't familiar with uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, I'd encourage you to pick up Eric Metaxas's book, Seven More Men. He's the man credited with ultimately exposing the evils of the Soviet Union. And eventually he was able to return to Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And prior to returning to Russia, a journalist asked him if he feared death and Here's what he said. He said, absolutely not. It will just be a peaceful transition. As a Christian, I believe there is life after death. See, he understood that even the darkness of death is a valley that we pass through. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I will fear no evil. And I just have three pretty simple next steps. First one is that I will con confront my fears by remembering God's truth. What are you afraid of today? I'd encourage you, write them down. Uh, you know, so many of your, your fears are real and look for places where God's word has a promise that maybe speaks to those fears. But you know what? You might find that some of your fears are shadows and God wants to speak to those as well. The second one is that I will confront evil. And maybe the Lord has prompted your heart today and you want to confront racism. Then join me these next 21 days. Listen, it's a heart issue. And so I'm starting with my heart. And then number three, I will be comforted by God's rod and staff. See, sometimes it's easy to accept God's staff. In other words, his guidance and his direction. Often it's much harder to accept his rod. And there are places where God is trying to get a hold of you and maybe you've been resistant. Why not be comforted by a good shepherd that knows you, that loves you, and wants the best for you? Will you pray with me? Father God, we love you. Thank you that you are our good shepherd. Thank you that your rod and your staff, they comfort us. And we are so grateful for that. But thank you too, uh, Lord, that as we pass through these dark valleys. God, that we know that we can boldly say we fear no evil, not because we are anything, but because we are nothing and you are our shepherd. So thank you, God, for loving us. Thank you, God, for saving us. And thank you for being the good shepherd. We love you. We praise you in Jesus name. Amen.